All right, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see those of you who came out to the early morning meeting. And I'm thankful for the blessings we've had this weekend. Amen. Amen. I've been especially blessed by all of the messages this weekend. And I know that the Holy Spirit has been with us. And I just pray that He'll be with us one more time. You know, for me, it's, it's a humble reminder when I get up in front to, sh to share with you that I'm a weak, sinful human being. And the thought that somehow God could share a word through me is sometimes hard to comprehend. And so I just ask that we would just have a word of prayer as we get into our message for this morning. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. I just pray that you would empty me of self and that Christ would be lifted up and that each person that is here would see Christ lifted up through this message. I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So what is our theme for this weekend? Be ye transformed. And of course, that is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And what I want to show you this morning, I'm going to be doing two presentations. What I'm going to show you this morning is that Paul develops that concept of transformation throughout especially the first eight chapters so that by the time you come to chapter 12 it makes perfect sense when he says be not conformed in this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and so I'm going to start actually in Romans chapter 1 the very beginning to show how Paul starts to develop this theme of transformation in the book of Romans. And you'll notice this in the very first few verses, and I hope you brought your Bibles with you, starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Here Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. And here we see a calling for each one of us. It wasn't just Paul who was separated to the gospel of God. If you study the three angels' messages, we see that God raises up the Advent movement at the end of time to proclaim the everlasting gospel. So you see, we are separated unto the gospel of God to proclaim the everlasting gospel. And I've appreciated the presentations we've heard this weekend. We have not been separated to be part of this world. We're not supposed to be proclaiming Jay-Z and Beyonce. And I knew friends in high school that knew the lines of the songs and the movies, but they couldn't quote a verse from the Ten Commandments or the Three Angels' Messages. And what I will submit to you today as we look at Jesus, when you really know Jesus, there's no way that your life is going to be that way. So Paul was separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now notice verse 3. Verse 3 tells us what the gospel is all about. Notice what verse 3 says. And by the way, the book of Romans is the most systematic theological description of what the gospel is. 
And in the first six verses, Paul gives a little snapshot, a little foretaste of what he's going to be developing. So notice verse 3. What's the gospel that Paul's been separated unto? Verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you know that the gospel is about Jesus Christ? So if you go and hear preachers who say, we are going to be talking about the gospel today, the good news, and you don't hear anything about Jesus, you didn't hear the gospel that day. The gospel is concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what is such good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Notice what Paul continues to say. Which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So what's Paul saying here? Paul is saying the gospel is good news because it's about Jesus Christ. And specifically, the gospel is good news because Jesus Christ came in our flesh. Amen. Now, why is it good news that Jesus Christ came in our flesh? You know, if you turn to the book of Hebrews briefly, a lot of times when we talk about Jesus taking our flesh, we understand that He took our flesh to be our example. But it's not just for that reason. Jesus also took our flesh so that he could die for us. Did you realize that if Jesus had taken the nature of Adam before the fall, he couldn't have died? If Jesus had taken the nature of Adam before the fall, that nature was not subject to death. It was only nature of the nature of man after the fall that was subject to death. Notice Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So notice, Jesus was made a man so that he could die for us. So... When we see the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And right there in Romans 1 verse 3, when it says the seed of David, David obviously had the nature of man after the fall, right? So Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh so that he could die for each one of us. But not only that, Hebrews 2 also tells us that he was made in, in all things like unto his brethren so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest who was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So the good news, and by the way, I'm, I hope that you're picking up a few points here. This is how you study your Bible. Here we are starting the book of Romans. We're just looking at the first three verses right now, and we already see all these things about Bible truths just jumping out at us in three verses. So many times we'll read these three verses and we'll be like, oh, wow, okay, Paul was separated of the gospel of God. Oh, yeah, the gospel, Jesus Christ came. There's so much deeper meaning in each phrase of Scripture. 
And we just pass over it so lightly. And, and so I would encourage you, as you come to like the book of Romans to study it, look at each of these verses carefully. Now notice, it doesn't, the gospel doesn't stop with Jesus being made of the seed of David according to the flesh. It continues. Notice verse 4. Notice what it says about Jesus. And he was declared to be the Son of God with power. Notice, Jesus didn't come to this earth and have no power. The good news about Jesus Christ is that He came to this earth in our flesh and He had power. And He offers to give us that same power to live here on this earth. To be declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. Do you know what brings power? Here the Bible says it's the spirit of holiness. And if you wonder why we lack power in our lives, in our Christian experience, is because we don't want to follow the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. That spirit of holiness. Do you remember what John chapter 16 says about the work of the Holy Spirit? What's the work of the Holy Spirit in, in our time or in, in all of time? The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That's the spirit of holiness. And do you know that's what Jesus did when he was here on this earth? He pointed out sin. He showed us righteousness. And he said that he would one day judge the world. <laughs> and do you realize that the spirit of holiness is working on each one of our hearts to point out the sin in our lives, to show us the righteousness of Christ so that when the judgment comes, we can stand in the judgment. And when we follow this Spirit, we will have power in our lives. And when we have this power, we will be able to preach the gospel with power. Now, you know, I was talking to Pastor McMillan about this because I was so blessed by his messages on the latter rain. And he was talking about Revelation 18, where it talks about that angel that comes down from heaven having great what? Great power. And it says the earth was lightened or illuminated with its glory. Now notice, after that, then you hear the repetition of the second angel's message. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now, I was talking to Pastor McMillan about this because one of my friends told this to me. This was not something that I saw in my study. Someone told it to me, and I'm sharing it with you. If you look at the three angels' messages, you see that the angels speak with a loud voice. So what sense of the five senses are being stimulated by the three angels' messages in Revelation 14? You're hearing in Revelation 18, this angel comes down from heaven having great power, and the earth is what? Lightened. What sense is being stimulated there? Your sight. And here has, here's what has happened, and this is when the latter rain is being poured out, which Pastor McMillan has talked about. When that happens, what you have is not so much a proclamation of the gospel with power. You have a demonstration of the gospel with power. You see, when the world sees that Seventh-day Adventists really demonstrate the power of the gospel, it's not going to be so hard to call people out of Babylon into God's church for the last days. 
We do all these things. We do these crusades and whatever, and we do get some baptisms. Praise God for that. But we try so hard, and yet we don't have the results that the apostles had at Pentecost because we don't have the power that's described here according to the spirit of holiness. We try to make up for that holiness by all sorts of other things, but if the holiness is lacking, it's not going to produce any fruit. And so here we see Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now notice, this wasn't just for Jesus. He didn't just come down and say, see, I show you, I'm God, I'm the Son of God. Yes, I lived in fallen human nature, and yes, I lived a powerful life. But notice verse 5. Here's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't just stop with Jesus coming. Notice what he's done for us. Verse 5. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for what? For obedience to the faith among who? Among all nations. Does that remind you of the first angel's message that the everlasting gospel is to be declared to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people? Here we see that Jesus has given us grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you this morning, are you the called of Jesus Christ? I hope so. You're here this weekend and you've been challenged by messages and you are the called of Jesus Christ to receive grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. You see, when the gospel has power in our lives, we will be obedient to Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do we love Jesus? Are we obedient to him? Are the Ten Commandments like this? It's like, oh boy. Here's the Ten Commandments. Man, I can't serve any other gods. Why is God so picky? Man, I can't take his name in vain. Man, why can't I just worship on any day that I please? And man, I have to, I can't take, I, I, I have to honor my parents? Man. Why can't I just tell them what I want to do and whatever? And man, I can't steal. I can't kill. I can't commit adultery. Okay, God, I'll just go along with the plan. And if I just kind of don't do this, I'll get to heaven one of these days. Is that how we serve God? Is that our obedience to the faith among all nations? You know, that'd be like me being married to my wife, you know, we enter into a covenant relationship with God just as, in, as we enter into a covenant relationship when we get married. And I'm so thankful for how Sister Huggins showed how important purity is in, in the context of marriage and all of that and before marriage. But what if I was like towards my wife, I'm like, you know, I come to the wedding day and I'm like, well, it's all over. Freedom's gone. It's going to be a rough life. Can't see anyone else now. And if I do, and if I get caught, it's going to be a, it's going to be a bloody battle. Whew. You know, but you know, that's how we treat God. It's like, 
Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? But you know, and, and sometimes perhaps our parents or our leaders don't show us the right motivation for following God. But what I want to do in the remainder of this presentation, because we see that Jesus has given us grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith, what I want to show you is that when you really get to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, not just your Savior, Yes, He's redeeming, but your Lord, in both aspects, you will never complain about the boundaries that God has set up to protect you. You realize those boundaries are simply there to protect you from unhappiness. And yet, we will complain about the boundaries that God has set up, and we'll, He'll put up these tall fences to protect us, and we're like trying to climb over those fences and fall off the other side, thinking that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Notice, let me show you now, the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus and His love for us. As we continue in Romans chapter 1, Paul, he's speaking to the church at Rome, and he can hardly contain himself about the power of the gospel. He talks about it in the first six verses. And then verses 7 through 15, he's like, you know, I, I've wanted to come to Rome and preach to you for so long. But since I haven't gotten there, I had to send you this letter to, to show you what the gospel is. And then in verses 16 and 17, he really gives one of the clearest declarations of what the gospel is. And we're going to talk about that. But just to show you the, the big picture of the book of Romans, after he tells you the gospel, then he says there's a, need, there's a reason why we need the gospel. The rest of chapter 1, he says, God has poured out his wrath against the ungodly. And the Christians are reading this and they're like, yeah, you tell them, those people that are into homosexuality and idolatry and murder and all those things. And then in chapter 2, Paul comes back around, and we don't have time to go through all of this, but I'm just giving you the highlights. Paul comes back around and he says, he says hey, you Christians, you who think you keep the law, when you break it, you're just as bad as those people in the world that are homosexuals and murderers and idolaters. So guess what? In chapter 3 he says, all of you are guilty before God and you all need a Savior. So don't think because you're a professed Christian that somehow you're better than anybody else because according to Scripture, we've all sinned, come short of the glory of God, and we all need a Savior. So don't go around acting like you're all spiritually proud, like, hey, haven't you seen me? Haven't you see all, seen all the good things I do? I'm the AY leader. I'm a leader of this group. I'm the pastor. I'm this. I'm that. And it doesn't matter how I treat people, but hey, at least I know the truth. Paul says it doesn't matter if you know the truth if you're not living it. And so that's how he develops the first three chapters. And then he gets into the gospel. And we're going to look at a few verses in Romans 3. And by the time you come to the end of Romans 3, you're going to say, well, wow, if I as a believer in God am just as bad as the people in the world, how could God possibly save me? But then in Romans chapter 4, Paul says, hey, do you need an example of a human being to show you that it is possible to live a life of faith, let me show you the life of Abraham. So in Romans chapter 4, you have the faith of Abraham. And then in chapter 5, you may be wondering, but how could that be possible? And then Paul shows, yeah, Adam, because you're thinking, Adam affected us. Because of Adam, we all have sinful natures and we have a bent towards doing wrong. But Paul shows in Romans 5, look, don't blame Adam. 
Don't blame Adam for you going away from God. Don't you realize that the effect that Adam had on humanity was more than canceled out by Christ the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Don't blame Adam. We have a Savior. And then after he does that, then you have Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans 6 is a clear declaration of how we can live victory, have victorious lives over sin through the power of Christ. Romans 7 shows that sometimes even when you know the truth, you stay unsurrendered and still live a life of sin. And then Romans 8 then is the final declaration of how we can be victorious in Christ. So that's a brief overview of the first eight chapters. And that takes us to chapter 12 and being transformed. Now let's go to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 because Paul can barely contain himself. He wants to show what the gospel is. So here we see Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Here Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And we just talked about this gospel. It's the gospel concerning our uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news about Christ. Why? For it is the power of God. There's that word power again. Notice the gospel has power. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Do you want salvation? Do you really believe that you can have salvation today? The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to who? To everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Which in the end of Romans 1 he's talking about the Greeks. But in Romans 2 he's talking about the Jews. Spiritual Jews so to speak. What he's saying is whatever your background is. If you believe this gospel is for you. Now notice. This gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This word power comes from the Greek word dunamis, which comes from the same root word from dynamite. What's dynamite used for? It's used to explode things, right? It blows things up. It blows up stone, things that otherwise could not change. You know what Paul is saying about the gospel? He's saying, you know what? We are weak, sinful human beings. But because of what Jesus has done for us as our Savior and as our example, the gospel is so powerful that just as dynamite can blow things up that no human could ever change, God has provided power that can change our weak, sinful human lives so that we can receive salvation. Amen. No human being can do it. We cannot do it, but God can because of His power. And that is the gospel to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now notice what verse 17 says. For therein. Now what is Paul saying? For therein. In what? In the gospel. For in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. Okay, listen. 
How could, it can't be any clearer than that. Paul is saying, in the gospel of Christ, in the gospel of God, the righteousness of God is revealed. Notice, is he saying that we receive a covering of Christ's righteousness, but we still talk to people the way the devil would? Is that what he's saying? He's saying we have an outward covering. Praise the Lord, we're saved, but we're not changed. Is that what he's saying? No, what he's saying is the reason why the gospel is so powerful is because the righteousness of God is revealed in those who believe in the power of God. And this is the unbelievable, almost unfathomable truth about the gospel and about righteousness by faith. Do you realize when the gospel changes you, you are a demonstration of Christ? You were a demonstration of His righteousness. Not only does He cover you, but the Scripture says, for therein is the gospel or the righteousness of God revealed. We are supposed to be living revelations of the righteousness of Christ. That's what the Scripture teaches. And I get concerned when I hear people say, I'm so thankful that Christ covers me with His righteousness even though I haven't changed. And you hear pastors in the Christian church teaching that, but it goes clearly contrary to the Scripture of God. And people, like the Apostle Peter says, they will twist the words of Paul to their own destruction. They'll take one verse, for example, the verse which says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And they say, praise the Lord. Sin abounds in my life, but grace abounds even more. The more I sin, the more grace I get. And the very next verse, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can you not read the very next verse and just pick the verse before and not put the whole package together? Do you see how Paul is developing this, this theme of be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? That's what the gospel's about. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And notice the, the famous phrase, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay. So here, here's what Paul says in these two verses. He's not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's explosive, dynamite power that changes the people who believe in this gospel power. And when they are changed, the righteousness of God is revealed in their life of faith. And they are described as the just who live by faith. Now, in the Bible, do you know who is described as being a just man? You know, there's several places in the scripture where someone is referred to as a just man. I'll give you a hint. It's in the New Testament. How about Jesus Christ? Remember, Pilate's wife had a dream. She, said, she sent him a message and said, Have nothing to do with this just man. And just so you know, it's the same word in the Greek as the just shall live by faith. Same word. There's no difference. Jesus was a just man. Now you could say, okay, well that was Pilate's wife. She was a pagan Roman. She was just saying something and, she, you know, 
what she, her description of Jesus doesn't compare to what Paul's saying in Romans 1. Well, okay, well, let's, let's go to the book of Acts. Do you realize that Peter and Stephen both describe Jesus as being just? And it's the same word as the just shall live by faith? So here's the point. If you want an example of what it means to see the demonstration of the just living by faith, look at Jesus Christ. He is the demonstration of the just who live by faith. Jesus was a righteous man. In John 14, 30, Jesus says, The prince of this world cometh and findeth nothing in me. And you know, Ellen White says in Faith I Live By, page 23, and in Great Controversy, page 623, she says, so it may be with us. She says that the devil will come and he will try to tempt us and get us to fall. And just as Jesus said, the prince of this world cometh and findeth nothing in me. She says we can have victory over temptation as well, and so it may be with us. In Faith I Live by page 23, but in Great Controversy, page 623, notice it's easy to remember, 23 and 623. In Great Controversy, page 623, instead of saying, so it may be with us, she says, this is, to, this is the condition of those who must stand through the time of trouble. So you realize that the message of the just shall live by faith is for those who proclaim the three angels' messages, who will stand through the time of trouble. Now, why is this message of the just living by faith so powerful? Well, let me ask you this. How powerful was the life of Jesus Christ? It was so powerful that 2,000 years later, the whole world still talks about him. The whole world still readily acknowledges that Jesus lived a perfect life. That Jesus gave a perfect sacrifice. That Jesus was the one altogether lovely. The one altogether holy. The one that everyone wanted to be around except for the self-righteous Pharisees. Even the Roman guards were convicted that he was the son of God. His life was so powerful that everybody saw the righteousness in his life. And the question is... Can we have that experience? According to the book of Romans, yes we can. The book of Romans says the gospel is so powerful that it can take us, weak, sinful human beings who are living now 6,000 years after sin and transform our lives completely into the righteousness of God so that we are a revelation of the righteousness of God because we, through faith, live a just life which is the same life that Jesus lived here on this earth. And that, my friends, is the power of God unto salvation. Now, I want to show you in the last part of this presentation what gives us the power to believe in Jesus so that we can be a righteous demonstration of his life here on this earth because it's a complete package turn with me to Romans chapter 3 
And if you look at verse 10, for example, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then you go through verses 11 through 20, and it shows how the world, through choices, through acts of disobedience, have gone away from God. And verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of the of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by what? Faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. So after Paul shows that all the world is under sin, he's saying, look, but righteousness can be for all who believe. And then he says, in verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. <clears throat> and at this point, you know what human nature's tendency is to say? Okay, I'm going to come back to God. I'm going to try really hard this time. I've heard the presentations, and man, I love my Jay-Z CDs. I love my Beyonce CDs. I love my outfits that make me look like a movie star. I love my, you name it, that makes me as much like the world as possible, yet I can come to church on Sabbath and still be declared to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I love that stuff, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to grit my teeth because I've been convicted that it's wrong, so I'm going to get rid of all that stuff, and I'll miss it. I really will. I'll miss it. But at least I'll have gotten rid of it. <clears throat> I'm going to try hard. Ugh. Oh, I still want to wear that dress. Oh, I still want to listen to that song. Oh, I miss it. Mm. I'm going to try hard. You know, we try to do that so many times. We were convicted of what is right. But that can't be the motivation. And it's good to know what's wrong and what's right. But notice, starting in verse 24 being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, how are we justified? It says freely. So how hard do you have to work to get that justification? It's a free gift. Can you imagine that? Jesus, He through his prophetic eye, let's just say, let's use our imagination a little bit. Let's just say, here he is hanging on the cross, and you know the scripture says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So he sees, the, that's the, the people that he saw who would be saved as a result of his death on the cross. Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down through his prophetic eye to August 1, 2011 at Camp Belandra. And he sees us here, and for the joy that was set before him, he sees young people who realize that their CD music collection, their dress, their diet, put them on the cross. And now, they're seeing Jesus hanging on the cross saying, you know what, I'm offering you justification for free. It's right here. It's being offered to you by my grace for free. 
You see, I'm a complete savior. I mean, Jesus. Jesus is saying, he's a complete savior. Take my full gift of salvation. It's free. All you have to do is accept it by faith. Yes, there are conditions. Ellen White says God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. It's not the type of grace that some people try to say, hey, you can keep your Jay-Z CDs and take the grace of God and have salvation. No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is you see Jesus on the cross and your heart becomes broken. You see Jesus as your Savior. He's your best friend. He's your redeemer. He's your advocate. You see, he's saying, yeah, I know my sister. I know my brother. They were doing all those things, but their heart is broken now. They, they want my free gift, and they don't want to live that way anymore. They truly want to put those things away. They're not playing games and gritting teeth and saying, I'm going to miss those songs. I'm going to miss those clothes. I'm going to miss those friends that I could hang out with and drink every once in a while. No, you're going to be revolted by sin because you see Jesus as your sin-pardoning Savior hanging on the cross, and you're saying, I don't want that anymore. I don't want those sins anymore. I want Jesus in my life. I want that free grace so that I can be a living demonstration of the righteousness of God, the power of God and the salvation to the world. And as we continue, it says, whom God, this is verse 25, after the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, it says, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And here's the thing. Do you really believe that Jesus can forgive your sins for the past and now declare you to be righteous through his power? How many of you really believe that Jesus can forgive you for the horrible things you've done in the past? Amen. Now here's the key point. Do you realize that if in your heart you question whether you have been forgiven, there's no way you're going to have faith to have power to have victory over sin. Because you're like, well... Maybe Jesus forgave me for, for when I used to drink alcohol. Maybe he forgave me for those bad clothes or the bad songs I was listening to. But I'm not sure. Maybe I have salvation. Maybe he's forgiven me. And then when you read the promises, now unto him who's able to keep you from falling, you're like, well, can he really do that either? Why do we question the power of God? Why would we question His Word? He says He is offering His grace to us freely for remission of sins that are past. They are in our past. He's forgiven us and He's justified us freely. What an amazing Savior. And you know, the last part of this presentation, I'm just going to read you what happened for some of the people who heard the messages that Jones and Wagner preached in 1888. He realized that in that, in the, and at that point, what, the, the struggle in the church was probably a little different than it is now. It was a different side of the same coin, but the issue ends up being about the same. Back then, Adventists preached the law, the law, the law. We must keep the Ten Commandments, grit down, bear down hard, grit your teeth as hard as you can, and you might just be able to get those Ten Commandments down one of these days. And 
all of a sudden, these young pastors from California, of all places, came to Minnesota, and the brethren from Michigan, who knew everything, wondered how these young guys could have such a new message that would show them what the real gospel was. They're like, you don't tell me what the gospel is. I've been an Adventist since 1844. I've been in this work for 45 years. I am the leader of this church. Don't you tell me what the gospel is. It was like the Pharisees who said, we are the leaders of the church. Jesus, you're just some guy from Nazareth who, as far as we know, was born out of wedlock. Why would we listen to you? But what was the message that these brethren really brought out? Notice what Ellen White says, and this is found. Let me get the reference for you. So, um, This is from Review and Herald in 1889. March 5, 1889, Review and Herald. So this is just six months after Minneapolis, or five months, something like that. She says, There are many who seem to feel that they have a great work to do themselves before they can come to Christ for His salvation. It's like, well, I'll come to Christ once I've taken care of all these things in my life. She says, they seem to think that Jesus will come in at the very last of their struggle and give them help by putting the finishing touch to their life work. So you're saying, okay, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to grit my teeth. I'm going to just try really hard to change. And then maybe after two or three months, Jesus will come in and give me his power to finish it off. No, he, that's, not what, that's not what the gospel is. She says, it seems difficult for them to understand that Christ is a complete Savior and able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Him. Do you realize that Jesus is a complete Savior? He is the one that's going to give you the victory over the struggles, the things that you've been convicted about that you need to put away. And the presentations that you've heard from Pastor McMillan, Dr. Walsh, Sister Huggins, Pastor Charles, and you've been saying, boy, I need to go home and get rid of those CDs. But I don't want to. But then when you see Jesus as a Savior who has offered free grace to you, His justifying, pardoning grace and power, you're saying, I want that. And then you're saying, you know what? First you're saying, well, I guess I'm going to have to try really hard. And then he'll come in at the end and he'll help me. No, no, no. He's a complete Savior. The grace is there. The forgiveness is there right now. Right now. Not only that, the power is there right now so that as he is your Savior, not only do you have his forgiving grace, you have his empowering grace to be a changed person, a transformed person that's not conformed to this world when you walk out of this place. It's, he's a complete Savior right now. And you know what Ellen White said that the experience was for so many Seventh-day Adventists who accepted this message in 1888? You know what they said? They said for the first time in their lives, they really had the experience of forgiveness of their sins. And she said, you know, it's a little late in the game to finally get to that point. I mean, in Hebrews 6, Paul's saying that's just the basic of our faith. But if you don't have forgiveness of sins, you're never going to get victory. And so what I'm trying to show you is the power, the amazing mercy and power of Jesus Christ. And Ellen White goes on to say, we felt the necessity of presenting Christ 
as a Savior who was not afar off, but nigh at hand. Do you realize that Jesus isn't so far away in heaven in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary that you can maybe barely get Him to hear you once in a blue moon? Do you realize that He's very near? That He wants to come close to you and save you and touch you in a real and powerful way, which is why Paul says, come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. You don't have to stand way back and say, okay, Jesus is way over there and maybe just a little bit of grace will come and touch me. No, He is near, a near Savior. All through the meetings, as the people sought to draw nearer to God, they brought forth works meet for repentance by confessing one to another where they had wronged each other by word or act. She goes on to say, I have never seen a revival work go forward with such thoroughness and yet remain so free from all undue excitement. You see, you're, you don't, you're not going to get a revival by the dancing and the drums and saying, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. And like I said the other night, then on your way home and you get the flat tire and you're questioning if God exists. Excitement does not generate revival. It's the peace of God which passes un all understanding. It's knowing that Christ has forgiven you for your sins of the past and that He is dwelling with you now to empower you for the present. That is what brings a transformed life. She says, We seemed to breathe in the very atmosphere of heaven. Angels were indeed hovering around the Lord had visited His people. Do you think the Lord has visited us this weekend? I hope you've sensed His presence here this weekend. We've been visited by the Lord. In His great mercy, He's reaching out to each one of us. Whatever our age may be, young or old, we're all people who've sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all need His saving grace. And as I close this first presentation, we'll have one more this morning, as I close this presentation, I submit to you Jesus Christ. Amen. I submit to you Jesus Christ, a complete Savior. I submit to you Jesus Christ, a Savior who is able to save to the uttermost. You know, there may be some of you, as you've listened to some of the presentations, will be saying, but, but Jesus couldn't save me because I've slept with too many people. Jesus couldn't save me because I've had too many alcoholic beverages too many times. Jesus couldn't save me because of this or that or whatever. But Scripture says in Hebrews 7, it's 25 and 26, that He is able to save to the uttermost, uttermost all who come to God by Him. There is nothing in your life that Jesus cannot be a complete Savior for. Not only will He forgive you, and thank God for the forgiving grace of Jesus, which melts our hearts and causes us to love Him. But it also causes us to live a transformed life. You see, and the best analogy I can use again is, is with my marriage with my wife. You see, I don't avoid other women because I don't want to get in trouble with my wife. And you realize some men do that. They, they stay away from the women because they don't want to have you name whatever could happen at home if his wife were to find out. And some men 
go ahead and take that risk. And it's an abomination that they do so. But there are some men who actually stay clean, don't commit the adultery, because they don't want to get caught. But in their heart, they wish they could do it. But you know, that's not my motivation. My motivation is I love my wife, and I would, that would tear my heart out to hurt her like that. Why can't we love Jesus like that? You see the motivation there? It's not so that, we're, so that we can have the rules checked off in the judgment. Like, yeah, and Jesus is our advocate and he's saying, yeah, Brother Norman, yeah, he, he didn't commit adultery, check. He didn't steal, check. He didn't kill, check. He honored his parents, check. But what if in my heart I was like, oh, I wished I could have. I wished I could have. God's going to say, man, we can't bring him up here. He's going to want to keep doing that up here and look for ways eventually through the ceaseless ages of eternity. Maybe after a million years, he'll try to take a chance. Because here's the thing. 1 John 4 eight says, He who loveth not knoweth not God. If you don't love God, you don't know Him. When you know Him, you love Him. And when you love Him, you're not going to be going around and doing all those things the world does. Because you love God. So I hope that as you've seen this presentation this morning, you've seen a clear picture of Jesus Christ. Our Savior. Our Redeemer. Our Lord. Doesn't He have the right to be the Lord of our life for what He's done for us? And His commandments are not grievous, as the Bible says. So let's, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in Heaven, we just thank You that You are a complete Savior. That you have justified us freely by your grace. And that you have offered us power, if by faith we can believe, to transform our lives so that we will not be conformed to this world, but that we will be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us here, that we will have heard your voice this weekend that we will give up the things of this world and that we will follow you all the way because we love you, because what you have done for us. Thank you so much. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.